Welcome to Fox Sports and the Jabo Podcast. Here are your hosts, Rob Nyer and CJ Nitkowski. And thank you for the very last time, Anthony Masterson, with the introduction to the Jabo Podcast. This is our very final episode, and it's a sad day for Rob and I because we've been doing this, I guess, has it been over a year now or so on these podcasts? I don't know how long, but it's all I know is this. We've, we've found our groove and we've gotten into it, and they've been a ton of fun. And so it's disappointing to know that this is going to be the last one, but it doesn't mean it's going to be a bad one. It's still going to be a good one because we have some really good stuff uh, to talk about. We're going to get into some of the latest headlines, uh, Howie Kendrick, the rumors going around that Ken Rosenthal mentioned uh, about him maybe going back to the Dodgers, which is kind of unusual. Doug Fister signed. Uh, with the Houston Astros, I think this is going to be a great find. We're going to break that down a little bit. And then I'm going to interview Rob Nyer, much like he did for me in the last podcast where Rob interviewed me. Now it's my turn uh, to work on my interview skills. I'm going to ask Rob the questions uh, that I hope or you've always kind of wondered, and we'll dig in a little bit, Rob. But first, let's start with Joanna Cespedes, maybe the biggest surprise of the offseason. And there was a lot of big contracts that were handed out, Rob, but Joanna Cespedes back to the Mets. And only a three-year deal, which is also surprising. I figured it's a one or a five, and it's probably not going to be one. Somebody's going to give him five years. But you want to assess this. Back to the New York Mets, uh, kind of a strange contract where it's it's a three-year deal, but he can opt out after one. And if he does, he'd make about $27.5 million. But your first reactions to you want to assess this going back to the New York Mets? Well, my first reaction, and by the way, uh, just in case, I don't want to forget, um, also thank uh, Scott McCoy and the Baseball Project That's right. for um, our, our our opening theme song, which uh, every time I hear it, I, I, I get a little thrilled because I'm just so 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 makes me so happy to to have um, the Baseball Project be a, a part of what we've been doing. So so big thanks to them. Now about Cespedes, my first thought honestly was that this was a tremendous thing for the Mets um, because I figured um, and. Thinking now, I'm not sure why I, I figured this, but at, when it happened, I thought this is tremendous for the Mets because they get a year of Cespedes, which they really need, or, or certainly they need something like him um, in their lineup. And there's a really good chance that he opts out after the first year, and then they don't have to worry about in, any decline. But after a, uh, uh, hearing from a friend of mine, who's also a tremendous baseball thinker and writer, um, I reevaluated and came to the conclusion that it's basically it's not a great deal for the Mets. It's not a great thing for Cespedes necessarily. It's probably better for him. It's fine for the Mets, but there's just as good a chance, I think, that Cespedes doesn't have a, gr- a big season. And so he stays for those next two years. And the Mets are, I wouldn't say stuck with him because he'll probably be worth he projects to be worth roughly what they're going to be paying him. Uh, but I think that like a lot of deals, I would say the great majority of deals, this one's pretty even. Yeah, you like it then. So, I mean, as far as even in the sense of you don't feel like if he gets the production that he's probably worth, you don't feel like it is an overpay at all. You're not worried about it. I mean, we see the AAVs <clears throat> go up, and I you think we have to adjust I, as we go along. I think performance-wise, it actually might be an overpay, a slight yeah. overpay. I think the Mets are paying for the great majority of what they're paying for is is his production, his, what he projects to do next season and, or this coming season and beyond. But they're also paying, I think, for goodwill. Mm-hmm. You think so with the fan base because of what they did last year? The fan base, the media, you know, mm-hmm. it's just it that that's worth something. It's hard to put a dollar 
you know, a figure on it, although you, it can be done. But, you know, if they're overpaying by, let's say, $3 million, $4 million in, in, in 2016, well, they probably make a lot of that back in, in good publicity and ticket sales. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I tell you, so that's interesting to me because I always feel like Sandy Alderson is never going to pander to anybody. I feel like he's one of these guys that has a plan and we're not going to be able to to put any pressure, whether it be the media or the fan base, and saying you have to do this, you have to do this. I felt like they have been pretty disciplined in sticking to their plan and they bring in a couple of different guys. They trade Neil Walk- trade for Neil Walker, that Jonathan Neese deal, which made a lot of sense and it's not a huge deal. It doesn't get people excited, but it seemed like a pretty smart one. They were disciplined in not bringing Daniel Murphy back despite the postseason heroics because they were kind of down on his defense and they were going to go ahead and let him walk unless they just unless he just fell in their laps on a, a really, really team-friendly deal. But I don't even think they would have done that. So it's inter- that's an interesting angle to think about Sandy Alderson in that front office maybe wanting to, to buy some of that goodwill because this was the one thing the Mets fans were complaining about the most. I mean, Mets' version of Twitter uh, had been exploding about this really all offseason. And as uh, they bring in um, – would they bring in Dribble Cabrera to play shorter, figure out how they're going to use him uh, and, and balancing this this thing. I'm bringing in Diaz. I mean, people were furious uh, when the New York Mets signed Alejandro Diaz and saying he is no cesspitus. Why are we doing this? And upset about the payroll. And that's another interesting angle to this because I just you know I'd been saying all off season uh, on radio and, and everywhere else that we're talking baseball and here saying you know what. It is what it is. The Mets are not, they don't have the money to spend. It's just the situation they're in. The Madoff stuff. We know about it. We know about the debt. That seems to have changed pretty significantly here. And now I wonder about the expectations going forward. The Mets, the payroll has been in decline pretty steadily over the last eight or nine years. And now all of a sudden it's, it's on the rise again. Is, is there no going back, you think, here for the New York Mets? They have to be uh, you know, a big market kind of spender because they're up to about, I want to say, 135 or so million right now. It's not the Dodgers, but they're moving up. They're now in the, in the upper half of Major League Baseball. Are they now making that commitment where it has to happen the rest of the way? Right? If Cespedes opts out, do they have to be spending money again to replace him in the winter? Well, I think that uh, that depends a great deal on what, what everyone else is doing. Um, I don't think that very few teams these days are going to spend whatever it takes every winter to, to, to project to, say, 90 wins or be competitive or whatever. I mean, even the Angels aren't doing it. And, you know, just a year or two ago, the Angels were supposed to be one of those teams that would just never settle, right? Mm-hmm. They wouldn't give up on a season. I'm not saying they've given up on 2016, but they certainly aren't the favorites, which they have been in, in previous years. Um, and I think the Mets, I think at the moment, yeah, I think that they are going to basically spend whatever it takes to, to be competitive um, because they have so many of the ingredients, especially their pitching staff. You know, their starting pitching is so good. You go into every season basically knowing – you. As things stand now, you go into the season knowing you win 70, 75, 80 games just with your starting pitching. It's that good. So, yeah, I think I think when you're in that situation, you feel compelled to do whatever it takes to then jump to the next level, add those extra 10 wins or whatever, 10, 15 wins, and be competitive. Now, if a year from now, uh, two of their starting pitchers or three of them are recovering from Tommy John surgery, I think that equation changes quite a bit. But as long as they have those pitchers, um, I think they have to be aggressive um, about their lineup. 
Does this change the outlook for you? I know predictions, they're not fun. We, we usually get exposed because we're wrong very often. But I had the Mets winning this division, at least as it stood, even before uh, they had Cespedes because I feel like they're just going to ride that rotation and, and guys not having limits. Stephen Matz will have some limits, I'm sure, this year. But Matt Harvey is not. Jacob deGrom is not. Syndergaard, I don't think, would have many. And so it seems like they're going to be able to let this rotation go. And for me, they were probably going to be, at least I would pick them to be, division winners pre-Cespedes. Uh, does this change it all for you? Or would it have changed had he gone to the Washington Nationals? Because apparently we heard there was a five-year offer there. A lot of deferred money. It sounds like it was about a five-year deal for 110, but present value was only about $77 million, and he walked away from that. Had he gone to the Nationals instead, uh, would that have changed how you feel about this division? Because it seems to me these are probably the two teams that are going to battle it out. Well, I mean, that certainly is what the numbers say. And I think you bring up an excellent question because – and it's I'm a little annoyed with myself for not having considered this before. They didn't just I know this is common. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's talked about this except me, but this isn't just the Mets getting Cespedes. It's the Mets keeping the Nationals from getting him. That's probably a six game swing. Mm-hmm. So absolutely, it makes a difference in the standings. And um, I, I don't know if we would be talking about the Nationals as the favorites if they had gotten Cespedes and the Mets hadn't. But I think that with the Mets getting him and the Nationals not getting him, the Mets are absolutely the favorites in that division. Yeah, it's so interesting because I usually will say that teams don't need to be reactionary, right? We sit there and say, okay, the Red Sox made this move. Do the Yankees have to make this one? I don't usually buy into that. I think if I was running a team, I just want to make my team the best possible team that I can make them within my limits and whatever it is from a trading standpoint or a financial standpoint, whatever resources I have. I'm just trying to make the best possible team and put the strongest roster I possibly can put together. But we're also kind of seeing it in St. Louis. Like, should they be reactionary when uh, the Chicago Cubs land? John Lackey and they land Ben Zobris and they bring in Jason Hayward, a couple guys that they stole. But I usually would say no. But in a situation like this, to have kind of a, a preemptive striker when you hear the Washington Nationals are in and, and working hard to keep him away uh, from that team and keep him on your team, it's pretty fascinating to me to think about and wondering how much that actually had to play in this because the Washington Nationals already have Daniel Murphy. And would Met fans just be furious watching Yoenis uh, Cespedes and Daniel Murphy come in the city? field nine times a year and, and deal with that, especially if they weren't winning. That might be a tougher pill to swallow. So while I think Sandy Alderson uh, is a bright guy, I think he probably deserves more credit than he gets. He does a very good job uh, running that team. I wonder if he reacted to that thought of him going to that uniform, because I automatically assume that smart general managers don't do that. But I kind of wonder, do you think that, that came into play in, in the thought process? Well, I, I think that that the best general managers are able to strip their emotions from their decision-making process uh, more than others. Uh, but you're never able to get rid of all of it. We're all humans. And, and then you toss in the, the ownership into the equation and the people who work for you um, and the media. Um, I, I think it's tough. Uh, did emotion play a part in this on some level? I suspect that it did. But I also think that it was a very calculated move and um, that – you know, heading into the season and maybe the season after that as as the favorites is not a terrible place to be. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And Met fans, of course, very happy that Yohannes Cespedes will be back in that uniform. I'm sure Jerry Seinfeld is thrilled, his most popular for sure, and maybe one of his biggest fans in New York. All right, moving on, Doug Fister, I thought was going to be one of the more interesting signs this offseason. And we had heard about him wanting a two-year deal. He was asking, apparently the rumors were, a two-year deal for $22 million, which... 
I didn't love hearing that out of him because he seemed like the perfect one-year uh, bounce-back contract candidate. And because he was asking for two, I was wondering a little bit if there was uh, some issues with him and how he was actually feeling and did he have the confidence that he could bounce back from a health standpoint and put together the one good year and then hit the free agent market next year. Well, when the dust settled, he ended up getting a one-year deal and it happened with the Houston Astros for only $7 million. I say only because of what we had heard uh, about him wanting the $22 million, but he found a place that he wanted to pitch and found a place that wanted him. And we heard him talk about after he signed uh, defensive shifting and how the Houston Astros are going to turn a lot of batted balls into outs. Doug Fister was everybody's favorite kind of underrated, under-the-radar starter uh, for a couple of years, for a few years, really, going back to, to what, he had did, what he did with the Detroit Tigers after getting over there in 2011 and even his first year in Washington in 2014 when he won 16 games and posted a 2.4 ERA, but last year was not his greatest year. He only made 15 starts. He dealt with a forearm issue, uh, and here come the Houston Astros kind of sweeping him up. Doug Fister in Houston, is this an ideal fit on a one-year deal? Even though it's a home-run friendly park, he's a ground ball pitcher when healthy. Uh, this is a good fit here and a good move by the Houston Astros? Uh, sure, for that price. I mean, you can't really go wrong at $7 million. That, that's one win above replacement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and there's a pretty good chance that Fister gets you that, although he didn't... Um, with the Nationals last season, he was awful. Um, you know, the, 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 <clears throat> I think that you mentioned the ground, the ground, him being a ground ball pitcher. Um, he was still a ground ball pitcher last season. In uh-huh. fact, it was one of the lowest ground ball rates of his career. It was the lowest of his, of his uh, qualifying seasons, 45%. I'm, I'm sorry, it was the, the worst. In yes. Terms of, so that's the issue. He used to be uh-huh. around 50%, 54% even one year with the, with the Tigers. He was down to 45%. Uh, last season, and guess what? The home runs went up, um, and that really killed him. Um, and he gave up more home runs than usual the year before too. The la- his last two seasons, um, really, and it's funny he finished. He had his best record ever in 2014, but it really wasn't one of his better seasons. Um, he went to a, a pitcher's park in the pitcher's league, and his, besides the wins and losses and the ERA, a lot of his numbers were worse. So he's really coming off a sort of a two-year run of not pitching all that well. Um, so I think it's a it's an open question whether he can get back to where he was. 2011 through 13, he was one of the best pitchers in baseball. And you're right, he didn't get a lot of credit for that, um, except from the nerds like me, but but he was. Um, and, you know, it didn't work out that way with the Nationals at all. Um, so we'll see. I think he's a good, at, again, at $7 million, you, you really can't go wrong. Yeah, it's all going to come down to the health of the elbow. He had a forearm strain. That's what he was kind of dealing with. He lost his spot in the rotation. The Washington Nationals had some depth in that rotation, so they couldn't afford to let Doug Fisser continue to make uh, starts. So he goes in the bullpen, and it really kind of became a non-factor the rest of the way. You talk about some of his numbers going in the wrong direction. Uh, Strikeout rate was near a career low. And really, like you mentioned, the last two years, uh, just 5.4 or 5.5 strikeouts per nine innings. The walk rate went up. Now, I'm sure that is a product, and it's still a very good one. It was 2.1 last year, and this is a guy with a career sub two, uh, two walk rate per nine innings. I mean, it's extremely impressive, but you see it going in the other direction. You have to assume that that has everything to do uh, with the forearm strain. So you're thinking a full year of being healthy. Uh, he's going into his age 32 season. He's, I don't think he's ever going to cash in and make the huge, huge money uh, that we're seeing from some of these free agent starters, but uh, an opportunity for him to go to the Houston Astros, uh, get things turned around, have that bounce back year and hit the free agent market, and it's going to be a much weaker uh, free agent market next offseason. What about where he fits in the rotation? I was kind of curious hearing some some Lance McCullers talk about maybe 
Fister taking his spot. Which I'm, I love Lance McCullers. It's hard not to like his stuff. I just saw a tweet go across as we were recording this where their general manager, Jeff Lunau, had said that McCullers will be on an innings restriction next year, and they fully expect him to be pitching in the postseason for them. Uh, and so maybe this means, I don't know if he starts the year in the minor leagues or they hold him back earlier. If Doug Fister is healthy, do you like the idea of maybe holding back a guy like Lance McCullers? I mean, they already have McHugh. They already have <clears throat> Dallas Keuchel. I mean, they have pretty good starting pitching there. Holding back a guy like Lance McCullers, uh, is that maybe the, the smart move here for them so that they have him at the end of the year? Because managing innings has become much more important over the last couple of years in Major League Baseball than it ever has. Absolutely. And right now, the the Astros have six starting pitchers that I think most people, most teams would be comfortable with, thrilled with, if, if, if Fister is healthy. And that's a, that's a big if. I mean, again, coming off a couple of seasons when he wasn't at his best, you don't know that he, come, he blows into spring training or, or opening day um, at 100% or even 90%. Um, but there's one thing we know. It's that you're almost certainly going to need more than five starting pitchers in the course of the season. And ideally, you have more than five good ones. Uh, so you can rest some guys so that when there's an inev- the inevitable injury, the, the one who, whoever steps in uh, gives you about what you were getting, or at least isn't just some uh, you know replacement level starter from AAA. So in Keuchel and McHugh and McCullers and Fister and Feldman and Fears, that's six guys who can pitch for just about anybody. Uh, uh-huh. And you're going to need those guys. The almost all, how many start the, the Dodgers used something like 18 starting pitchers last season. I mean, it's <laughs> it's insane. Um, so I, I like it. You know, I think the, the Fister he might not pitch at all. Who knows? He might be the sixth starter. Uh, that, you know, I, I'm looking at a depth chart where he's number four ahead of Feldman and Fears. Well, we'll see. I'm not sure how you. <laughs> I'm not sure how you how you how Fister winds up fourth on your depth chart. Quite frankly, um, uh-huh. but that I don't think he is. I think right now. Fister is six, and if he pitches great in spring training, then he moves up, and you figure it out. Yeah, absolutely. I think Felbin might be the one guy who maybe could be in a little bit of trouble. Just looking at the innings when we were talking about Lance McCullers, 167 combined minor leagues, big leagues, and the one start that he made in the postseason. So you figure, what, maybe 185 uh, would be a good number if you can get him there very comfortably, and then you can even push him a little bit uh, in the postseason if need be. That'll be interesting. Real quick, you brought that up about how many pitchers the Dodgers used last year. Baseball Reference actually does a pretty good job where if you go to any team, they'll tell you how many batters and how many pitchers they use now this does, they didn't break it down by starters it's pretty easy to do it manually but i just did it real quick and it's absolutely fascinating to look at so last year they used 31 total pitchers which was a record for them the year before their highest before that was in 2013 when they used 27 but if you like getting in wormholes and wasting time online and you start to scroll down and go all the way down to something fun like 1885 where the dodger when it was the brooklyn grays they only used four pitchers that year <laughs> and now here we are in 2015 where they used 31 i'm always fascinated uh, by that kind of stuff and baseball reference is a is a really good uh, really good website in that regard all right one last one uh, that we saw this from ken rosenthal today also very interesting to me howie kendrick and Cowie, howie excuse me howie kendrick has draft pick compensation attached to him and he looked like he may be the guy that is going to have a difficult time finding a job we'd heard some links to maybe the arizona diamondbacks but uh doesn't seem like a fit necessarily to have to move Aaron Hill, $12 million contract that he has, and we're hearing that Dave Stewart and company does not want to lose the draft pick that they have left to sign Howie Kendrick, and there just does not seem like 
there would be a lot of suitors. But here comes Ken Rosenthal now telling us that very possibly uh, that the Los Angeles Dodgers are back in on Howie Kendrick, despite signing Chase Utley. Uh, Chase Utley, despite uh, Farhan Zaidi telling me back in December that he was perfectly fine with Enrique Hernandez being their everyday second baseman. Howie Kendrick back to the Dodgers with Utley with Hernandez. It, it's not nothing's done, but this is what we're hearing as a possibility. I was worried about him finding the big contract that he probably deserves. Like the idea of him maybe going back to the Dodgers and then basically having the same second base situation they had at the end of 2015? Well, I thought it worked out pretty well for them. Uh, I, I wouldn't make a long-term commitment to, to Kendrick uh, unless you're willing to eat, eat part of that contract. Now, the Dodgers have shown a willingness to eat contracts in the past, last year or so anyway. So <laughs> maybe they're not worried about uh, you know what how, how well Howie Kendrick's playing in 2018 or 19. They just were worried about 2016 and 17. And then I think then you can justify uh, bringing him back. My guess is um, that this wouldn't come up unless he had impressed a lot of people within the organization. Not just statistically, because we can all look at the numbers, but also what he was like on the, on the field, during the games, in the clubhouse, etc. Um, so, you know, I, I, nobody knows more about, the, about Howie Kendrick at this moment than the Los Angeles Dodgers. And mm-hmm. so if they're, if they're serious about bringing him back, I, I would guess they have a pretty good reason. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to me to think about the four guys that are left, Ian Desmond, Dexter Fowler, Gallardo, and Howie Kendrick, guys that still have that draft pick compensation attached to them, guys that declined the qualifying offer. We saw a lot of guys go back to their other teams. We saw teams give up later picks. What was interesting to me, and I'm kind of flipping the script real quick, but I, I think I want to say it's the 39th pick, if I'm not mistaken. It will change a little bit potentially depending on how things finish out. But the 39th pick that the Arizona Diamondbacks would have, they already gave, lost one when they signed Granke. They gave up the 13th pick in next year's draft to sign. Zach Granke. You start looking at the value of that pick. I want to say it was about a million and a half dollars that goes into your bonus pool. If you're looking at a team like the Arizona Diamondbacks who have made uh, some improvements here and they're trying to compete in that very difficult National League West, something like the 39th pick, a million and a half dollars in your bonus pool, is that worth giving up if that was your first pick uh, in the draft because you already lost one for a guy like Howie Kendrick? How do you feel about kind of the mindset and how you're running a team and how important those draft picks really are? Well, you can put a value on the draft picks. It's been done. The 39th pick is not worth a great deal. Um, uh-huh. It's not worth less. Uh, there is a, a value there. That guy might turn into an all-star, but the great majority of the time, he won't. And if he does turn into a major leaguer, it'll be most likely three, four, five, six years down the line. So um, uh, I, in, if you ask me, if the Diamondbacks are not willing to sign Kendrick because of that pick, or if they say they're, 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 it's not, that's not really the reason. It's because they, they don't want to be paying Aaron Hill $12 million <laughs> still and not playing, or because they don't want to spend whatever um, uh, it, it, it takes to sign Kendrick. I don't think the draft pick would be the sticking point. It wouldn't for me anyway. Yeah, that's interesting. And thinking about kind of looking at the Arizona Diamondbacks, and we, I think we make the assumption they're a little bit of an old school franchise when you think about Tony La Russa and Dave Stewart and Howie Kendrick seems like he'd be their kind of guy, right? He's been very consistent. You look at his offensive numbers, the consistency of them are pretty unbelievable. When you look at batting average on base percentage, the home runs have changed a little bit here and there, but nothing too significant. He, he had 18 in 2011, but that, I think that's more of an anomaly. You're, you're banking on somewhere between 8 and 11 home runs, and he's continued to do that 
uh, throughout his career. So that's stuff to me, pretty fascinating, wondering what will happen with him because you know, going into his age 32 season, you think he'd probably get a, at least a three-year deal and, and who knows, maybe somewhere around $40 million. But I don't yeah, know. Do you that's remember Howie Kendrick in the minor leagues, by the way? I do not. I don't know if I ever faced him in the he, minor he, leagues because I, I very rarely did I face um, teams that were were in the West. For he the hit part. he hit three sixty in the minor leagues in his career. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's when it was happening, mm-hmm. it was sort of unbelievable. I mean, he would put like Rancho Cucamonga, um, Cal League hits three eighty four, yeah. and then he goes to Texas Texas League and hits three forty two, and, and then he goes to the Fall League and hits three eighty, and I mean, it just went on and on and on like that. Especially early on, he 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 was a batting average monster the first four or five year, years of his um, minor league career. It was incredible. Yeah, it is fascinating to watch. And as I'm looking at it real quick, I don't, yeah, we never crossed paths. By the time I had gotten into the um, the Pacific Coast League, he was still in A ball and he didn't spend a lot of time in AAA Salt Lake City in 2006. And I was in the International League, which, listen, the PCL is a good hitters league and the Cal League is a good hitters league. But I mean, but it's not to that degree. I mean, the numbers he put up, that is fascinating. 360 batting average career, 403 on base in the minor leagues. That is, uh, that's fascinating. He's done it. It's, the consistency is just absolutely amazing. So hopefully he finds his spot and he continues to play as a good player. I wondered if the Angels would have been interested in bringing him back. Because right now, uh, Giovanni is going to be, who's the second baseman? Uh, Giovatella is going to be their second baseman right now. So I kind of wondered if they were interested in a reunion. But we have not heard uh, very much about that. So we'll see if the Dodgers end up signing Howie Kendrick back. I'm sure Dodger fans uh, would love to have him and, and Chase Utley, uh, at least you know having the depth and splitting time and figuring out how you want to work that. Uh, all right, so now, finally, the moment that you all have been waiting for as we wrap up our final Jabo podcast ever. Uh, a sad day for sure because this has been a lot of fun. And, and I tell you what, Rob, I don't know about you, but I, when anybody even sends us a note uh, that they enjoy listening to the, to the podcast or they're disappointed that it's going away, I mean, it's always humbling to me. Right. I mean, we sit there and we, we do our work and we try to hopefully give people something, whether it's on the writing side or the audio side, you know, something that interests them, something that they would want to listen to. And then whenever we get feedback from people, uh, it's, it's extremely humbling to me because you never know uh, what kind of job you're doing. So know that we read all the comments that we get and we appreciate it. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you feel the same way. I do. I mean, I, I think, uh, I, you know, I listen to podcasts for for years and. I'd been I'd been a guest on a, a few of them over the years, uh, but to have my own uh, with you um, was it's been a thrill. And uh, it, it obviously it doesn't really make any sense to do it if no one's listening. So when you hear from people, it it, it really it's it's great. Yeah, absolutely. So we definitely appreciate that. But we're going to do uh, a little Q&A here. And you, you've been doing this for a long time. And I'm not trying to make you feel old by any means, but you are, uh, you're one of the originals. Uh, you were one of the guys to bring this to the forefront when we started talking about advanced metrics and digging in a little bit more. And Bill James uh, was a mentor to you. And there's a lot of guys I've talked to actually even recently that, you know, when I told them Jabo was going away, they're like, man, how is that that, you know, a Rob Nyer, or, you know, run site where he's behind a project. This is one of the best that the game has to offer how is it possible uh that this is going away and i know steve hofstetter who's done a lot of work with us was was really disappointed about it as well but 1996 was when you took over when if i'm correct me if i'm wrong but that's when your first major columns started happening when you kind of for espn.com where you became a columnist right i mean that's a that's a that was the year that it kind of kicked off for you is that correct yeah that's right i i i was hired by um what was then a company called Starwave, owned by Paul Allen, the Microsoft billionaire. Um, and we ran a number of websites. Um, 
sports websites. We had a movie website, various other things. We had we had some CD-ROMs, some gaming stuff. But one of the things we did was we, we ran ESPN's website, which was then called ESPNNetSportsZone.com, <laughs> believe it or not. So uh, 20 years for you. You just wrapped up your 20th year, right? 2015 uh, was your 20th year. I think my first this. day on that job was March 15, uh, 2006. So it's almost 20 years. And that, I was hired as an editor, not a writer. Uh, uh-huh. But within a few months, I had sort of shifted a lot of my energies from editing uh, to writing. And uh, nobody said, hey, Rob, write this thing. I just started doing it. You could That was a, a fun place. You could sort of, if you were lucky, you could sort of make your own job. And and uh, I just realized I enjoyed writing a lot more than editing. So I started shifting my, <laughs> my, my focus there. Yeah, which is I totally could uh, get on board with that. It makes a lot of sense. It's it's nice when you, uh, first of all, have an opinion. You can put it into words, and then the people actually want to read it. It's a lot more fun than, than maybe correcting other people's uh, grammar <laughs> and, and facts mistakes. That certainly makes a ton of sense. But what about over those 20 years? I mean, you think about going back to 1996 and where we were in this industry. I mean, obviously, the dot-com stuff was just kind of starting to – just kind of kicking off. But not only that, but at the same time, uh, now an opportunity – to dig a little bit deeper uh, and the Bill James stuff and getting into sabermetrics and, and just digging deeper on numbers, comparing, say, 96, 97, 98, the early years to where we are now. I mean, it is so strong and it is so present in media. When you look back at those 20 years and the path, do you look at these last few as, as almost validation? I mean, the fact that we even got to start Jabo, the fact that there's fan graphs and baseball perspectives and so many more places that now dig in. It's happening in front offices. It's prevalent throughout the game. Uh, it was, that, was there a watershed moment there somewhere along the line where you said, you know what? People are getting it. Teams are getting it. Fans are getting it. And early on when people were making fun of us, that was all worth it because of where we are right now. <laughs> well, uh, I, I don't really think of that world in uh, – it in a Rob Nyer centric way. So I don't think of it as like, Oh, they, they used to make fun of me and now look where we are. Um, I I tend to see the broader picture, I think. And if there was a watershed moment, it was actually quite a, quite a while ago. I mean, it was when, when Moneyball came out the book, Mm -hmm. um, because that was a massive bestseller. Now, of course it isn't, it's not like, uh, every, everybody within, baseball read the book and loved it and rushed to do all the things that Michael Lewis said you were supposed to do. It didn't happen that way, but just seeing uh, the term Moneyball all over the place, uh, because it quickly became used in in many other contexts, um, it was clear that something had changed. And that was, the book came out in what, I believe 2003. So that was seven years after I'd started. Um, and now, almost, and now it's 13 years ago. That's a long time ago. The, 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 the Red Sox hired Bill James in um, 2001 or 2002. Um, so that was a watershed moment, I think, because Bill had never really had a prominent role with the team before. And, of course, the Red Sox then went on, went to, on to great success almost immediately. So um, I think that the early – the first three or four years – of this century is when things really began to change in a, in a, in a very public way. Um, certainly before then there had been things happening behind the scenes. I mean, the A's and, and a, a few other teams had been looking at advanced metrics, uh, as far back as the 1980s. Um, so it, it, it isn't as if baseball 
just began to change 15 years ago. Um, but really in a public way, that's when things really began. That was the moment. Yeah, and it's interesting for me, I think, and I'm curious how you feel about it, when we now hear players talking about it. I mean, now there are players that are all in, and I know in those early years and any conversations that would happen, I mean, players were, they didn't want to hear about it, right? It was as old school as it gets when things first started happening, and, and you're writing these columns, and other people are getting on board, and there's there's more information out there slowly but surely, and I remember uh, being extremely skeptical and didn't want to hear about it. I don't want to hear about on-base percentage. I was more interested in the person and the player uh, and didn't want to dig in numbers and didn't think guys should be criticized, but what about even nowadays when we have so many guys uh, uh, that are number savvy and they get it and there's certain things that they look for. They're not worried about uh, their ERAs as much. Pitchers still care about wins. I don't know if that'll ever go away. They get it. Don't get me wrong. They get it when they know when they're pitching well and they're not getting the wins. They still like to have them though. There's something about having those wins and, and reaching that, that, that 20 number which still feels good for guys and they want to get there but they're a lot smarter too and they get it and they look at ground ball rate and they look at strikeout percentage and walk rates and things much differently and, and batting average and balls and play current players are doing that is that kind of one of those another kind of moment where you say okay you know you get it and it, it, we've made progress and you like seeing that and it feels like you know a lot of the work and i know you're saying it's not your work it, you weren't the one who invented necessarily this but you certainly were uh, behind it early on in the early years when you see these players now talking about it does that kind of give you maybe a little bit of yeah we did it we got it people are figuring it out well i, I think that again I don't really put put myself into the story, but I I, I enjoy I enjoyed change, and dynamism, and um, it's just interesting to me when you hear players talk about these things. Joey Votto is all over it, and of course Zach Greinke, and before him Brian Bannister, and and and, and many others. Um, you know, and and you know what? I'll, I also another thing that I enjoy about maybe this, the the one thing that gives me the most pleasure is when I hear a pitcher talk about the things that he can control and the things that he can't control. <clears throat> and that appeals to my sense of fairness. You know, I, I, it, it, as odd as it might sound, um, I, I, I don't like to hear a pitcher, I don't want a pitcher to feel bad because um, he gave up three ground ball hits. You know what I mean? <clears throat> um, I, I want that pitcher to, to know that it wasn't his fault. Uh, that things just don't go well sometimes. And, and so it's gratifying to me whenever I hear any athlete or a coach acknowledge the role of luck. Um, it, it, I, I find that gratifying because uh, uh, it, 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 you know, I, I have some, some empathy for, for the people that I see on television. Um, I always feel bad for the guy who gives up the walk-off home run, no matter what team he's on. Um, and um, I, 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 I just appreciate a sort of a sense of fairness and uh, giving yourself up, giving yourself to the to the the idea that you can't control everything, and that sometimes bad things happen to good players. Um, and and uh, so the more pitchers that understand that, the happier I'm going to be. Yeah, and I tell you what, it helps guys too with the grind, knowing that they're sitting here and they're grinding through it. And, and sometimes it isn't their fault. And if you go by the way that we've always kind of judged players on those kind of numbers and certain numbers that don't tell the whole story, they can get down on themselves when they you know, when they look at those. And so it sometimes even helps with the psychological part where a guy can dig in a little bit more. And, and now we can point to his bad luck and, and show him the things that he did well. On the flip side, of course, we see guys get a lot of wins that probably didn't deserve it or, you know, whatever, whatever the case may be. And, and their seasons look better than they actually 
actually were too. So there definitely are two sides of this. Something I did not know about you, and I'm hoping this is accurate. I'm kind of trusting the internet on this, something I never <laughs> even thought about. But uh, you started at the University of Kansas, but you did not finish. Did you ever go back and finish your degree? Or was this when you walked away and, like I said, trusting what I read on the internet, which you can't always trust, but trusting what I read at school, you got tired of it in your senior year and moved on, and then all of a sudden uh, things, your career kind of took a, a different direction they were planning on. But I wanted to ask you about leaving school. Did you go back? And not that we're advocating that, but I kind of did the same thing. I left school to pursue a career. But uh, tell us about that decision. Well, uh uh, I, I've never used the word decision because I, I didn't actually make a conscious decision to quit school. Uh, I mean, honestly, the way it happened was uh, it, we got to about, uh, by the way, I wasn't a senior, but this was my fourth okay. year. Oh, um, I see. Gotcha. Makes sense. <laughs> Uh, just I don't I don't want to give myself any any, any credit for for more any more credits than I actually had. Um, I, I, it was my fourth year. We were probably it was probably March, maybe this was April, and I had not had a good semester. Um, had probably skipped half my classes. Um, was probably getting lousy grades in every class, and it got to a point where. Uh, I needed to finish some some writing some papers and studying for finals, and I just had zero appetite for any of it. And a friend of mine was uh, was working for a roofing company, and he said he could give me a job. And I said, you know what? I'd rather roof houses in 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 April and May than than this other stuff. So there was never a, a, a truly conscious decision. I'm not sure. I guess I guess when I started roofing, I realized I'm not going to take my finals on Friday. Um, <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, I, and no, I never went back. Um, I think, um, you know, the older I get, the more I regret not having a degree. I don't know why, but I guess it's just, a, it's a symbol of failure. And, uh, uh, you know, when you, the older you get, the more failures you accumulate. And, uh, I, I if you're lucky, um, you, you figure out ways to, to deal with those failures and you, you use them in a productive way, ideally. Um, I'm not sure if I have done that, but the problem for me with college, well, one of them was that I just found most of it a crashing bore. And I don't know if that would be any different now. Uh, the first, the first time I went to a class and had a professor who wasn't interesting, that would be it. I'd be done again. So I, I don't think that that would, that situation, that, 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 uh, environment probably just wouldn't work for me. Yeah, well, like I said, we're in the same club in that regard. Uh, that is one thing that my wife loves to hold over me, that she's the only one in our house with a, <laughs> with a college degree. And as I sit here and prepare three children and at some point sending them all off to college, thinking about really the value in it and how many people have been successful uh, that have not gone to college. I think we fall into the trap of thinking we have to go there. We have to get that degree. And, and almost the value of that has, has even come down uh, since you and I were in college just because it seems like everyone's getting their bachelor's now and it's almost like having uh, your high school degree but it's fascinating it's something i never uh would have thought you know you're one of the smartest guys i've ever been around and so you just kind of automatically make that assumption so i thought that was a really cool point i think it's a cool story and a cool part of your life and ultimately uh what that led you to uh we can do this i think all the time we kind of go back and we think about like you said maybe not a decision but just something that happened in our lives and and pointed us in a different direction that maybe we were never expecting uh which is pretty cool we mentioned the 20 years 20 years of columns uh, six books under your belt. You also helped out with Jonah Carey's book, uh, The Extra 2%. But you've done both, obviously, and you've done it a lot, and they're completely uh, 
they're completely different works. So you're writing a column, you can put a couple hours maybe and knock it out. Uh, books significantly much more time that you have to put in. Is there a passion for one over the other when you think about your writing? You know, I, th- I think that the passion that I have more passion for whatever I ha- haven't done recently. Um, when I was not writing books, I couldn't wait to start the next book. Um, <laughs> when I was writing a book, I, I could, or when I finished, book, I couldn't wait to go back to just writing about baseball every day. What's ha- you know, writing columns and blogs. And uh, the re- I haven't written a book in a while. And the reason is that when I was writing books, I was writing columns. That's all I was doing. And I was, for a while, I was writing three columns a week, uh, which, by the way, is, um, as I've mentioned a few times over the years, literally the best job in the entire world <laughs> where you actually have to work. I mean, there are jobs where you don't have to work, where people just send you checks. That's yeah. even better. But uh, writing three columns a week, which a lot of newspaper guys still do, um, is the best job in the world because you have so much more time to do other things. So I was writing three columns a week and writing a book every, every year or two. Um, and I really enjoyed that. I, I love the process of writing the book. The writing is hard, but the research is, I just love, uh, I, I lo- um, that's, that's so much fun. Um, but again, when I finished writing the book, I was, it, it's a grind for months. Um, you basically feel guilty anytime you're not working on the book. Um, so when I finished, I was thrilled. And then a month or two would go by and I, I would start thinking about what, what's the next one going to be. Um, so, uh, I would say, uh, I have a, a great passion for, for writing every day. Um, but also for working on the books and just holding up and getting inside my head and, uh, trying to figure out how this is going to fit with that. And they're just, they're completely different sorts of pursuits and, but I enjoy both of them. Yeah, definitely a lot different, uh, as far as the amount of time that you have to put in. It's, uh, it's pretty fascinating and listening to guys talk about writing books and, and what goes into it. And then, you know, something happens along the way, whether your publisher doesn't like it or somebody else comes out with a similar book at the same time. I mean, it's, <laughs> I, uh, it's, it's I, so those things have happened to me. And also I once, uh, started working on a book and got about a 20% into it and, and hadn't backed anything up and lost the entire book. Oh my goodness. So, I can't even imagine. So I was so discouraged I I gave up on that one and, and started a different one. <laughs> that is uh that's I mean I think about losing a couple of you know favorite photographs. I can't imagine actually putting in that much <laughs> amount of time and, and losing and losing all that work. And I get it. I it's be tough to start over. What about favorites of yours and thinking about whether it be columnists or, or authors and people that have written books, who is out there today or even just, you know, works in the past that uh, people that you really admire, recommend, uh, people that you look up to the way that they write? Wow. Uh, I mean, you know, it's funny. I'm, I'm surrounded in my house by books, basically any room I go into. Um, and, it, but it's, it's hard for me to choose to mention anyone baseball, just in terms of baseball writers. Um, obviously I think 95% of the people listening know this, but, uh, uh, Bill James, uh, is the one who turned me into what I became in, you know, first I was a reader and then I was Bill's employee for four years. Um, and I, I just find the way that Bill writes and the way his mind works just infinitely interesting. Um, so, uh, you know, he, he would obviously be number one. Um, I have loved, the Michael Lewis's books, the ones I've read, um, because of his ability to tell a story. Um, but I'm, I'm constantly reading right now. I think I'm in the middle of seven books. 
oh um, for different reasons. They're all different sorts of books. And uh, there aren't that many writers that I just have to read religiously. Um, there are a few novelists. Jonathan Franzen, uh, I think is fantastic. Um, nonfiction, uh, Simon Winchester is a great writer. Ian Frazier, who's written for The New Yorker for any number of years, is a great writer. I love old, reading old Joseph Mitchell uh, pieces from The New Yorker. Um, this is, you know, if I, I would say that if I have a, a particular passion, um, it, it would be, it's not a style, it's a, it's a level of quality that you find in The New Yorker. Um, I, I have a small collection of, of books written by New Yorker writers going way back to the 30s um, or written about the New Yorker. I'm, I'm fascinated by the history of the magazine. Um, so, And I read the magazine every week, of course, uh, as well. So if there's one constant in my reading life, it would be, it would be the New Yorker just because it's been there for so long. And there's never a shortage of... I just finished Oliver Sacks' memoir, um, who wrote there for years. So... Um, you know, I, I could, obviously I could go on and on and on about this, and I have dozens of favorite baseball books, but um, those are some of the those are some of my touchstones. Yeah, it's great stuff, and certainly people totally understand the Bill James angle, and it's always uh, I think cool to hear those stories and think about the people that have influenced you, and like you said, kind of gotten you uh, to where you are now, and has, has really helped shape you over the years. Uh, I want to ask you about. Uh, your membership in the BBWAA. I'd read that originally in 07 that you and Keith Law were tied together as guys that were not admitted the first time you applied. Uh, but in 2008, your official membership started. And assuming that it hasn't ended, in 10 years, uh, you're going to get your Hall of Fame vote. Is that right? In the 2018 season, that'll be your first year? That no, you no. It had, my membership did end. Um, oh, it did? It did. I, didn't, I, I did not know that. Now, why did that happen? Well... <laughs> You know, the, the, the funny thing is it probably wouldn't happen today, uh, but uh, the Hall of Fame, uh, I've always had, I shouldn't say the Hall of Fame, the, that's probably a Freudian slip, by the way. Um, <laughs> the, the BBWA had a, a, a highly restrictive policy um, until about 2008, um, and, and I, I was not, uh, unbeknownst to me uh, at the winter meetings, which I didn't attend at that time, um, in 2007, and maybe in 2006 as well, I don't remember for sure. Um, I think 2007, absolutely, and maybe eight. My editor's editor was at the, this is when I was at ESPN.com, was at the, the winter meetings and, and submitted my name. Unbeknownst to me, it wasn't anything that I pushed or even knew was happening. Um, and I was rejected. And I did, that, that, I did find out about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I have this um, uh, longstanding deep-seated fear of rejection um it you know it's it's pretty it's pretty severe um and it's 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 hurt me in my career multiple times because i have been reluctant to call people to work on stories i I've, yeah it's gotten better over the years but it's still there you don't lose those things at least most of those things we if we have them when we're 14 we have them when we're 50 um and i certainly do um so it it was it was it, it was um I wouldn't say it hurt my feelings, although I suppose it did. It made me angry. Um, and the, the reasoning then was that Keith and I didn't work for a newspaper or hadn't worked for a newspaper. Um, so we weren't, um, so we were rejected. Um, now, a year or two later, we both were accepted. 
And I sort of had ambivalent feelings about that. Again, I didn't submit my name. My editor did. Um, And I was so upset at having been rejected. I wasn't sure if I wanted to be in the BBWA. But then the card got here. And you know what? There's a it's it was kind of I I'm not going to was I ambivalent? Yes. But there's also a certain thrill to become a part of that tradition. You know, I'd been reading um, (laughs) Red Smith and, 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 and all the old baseball writers for a long, long time. And to be a part of the same group that they had been in. Yeah, it was a, it was a little bit of a thrill. Um, so I was in the, the group, I was in the BBW for four years, four or five years. And, uh, then I left ESPN, went to SB nation and was grandfathered in my first year in my second year at SB nation. Um, uh, the BBWA would not accredit SB nation as an organization. And so I, I lost my membership. So it's been three or four years now. And I haven't tried to reapply while at Fox. That probably would have worked. And now they've changed their policy so that the, the local chapters are, as, as near as I can tell, completely in charge of who's a member and who's not. So if, you're, if your local chapter head uh, thinks your organization is worth accrediting or you're worth accrediting as, a, as an individual, you're a member. Um, I haven't applied uh, to be readmitted. And again, I think it goes back to being upset with the BBD for kicking me out in the first place. Um, it's, so it's stubbornness. Um, and if they let me back in, or if I, if I was, if I were a member again, I believe my, my hall of fame ballot clock would start all over again. So now we're looking at 2027 or something. And I've always had a difficult time thinking about the future, which I think is part of the reason why I quit college. You know, nothing makes sense to me outside of, say, the next week or the next month. So to think about, oh, it'll be great to have a Hall of Fame ballot when I'm 60. Really? (laughs) I I don't even know if I'll be alive when I'm 60 or if there will be a Hall of Fame or if I'll care about it. I mean, it just seems like a ridiculous thing to even think about. So, uh, the only benefit, uh, BBWA member wise is that you can just show up at the ballpark and stroll right through the the door and not have to worry about lining up a, 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 a credential before you go to the ballpark. And um, because of the baby, I haven't been up, I didn't make it to Safeco Field uh, very often uh, last season. So it really wasn't even an issue. Now, going moving ahead, if I have reasons to be at Safeco fairly often, it would be nice to be a member just to save that, that, that part of the process, having to, to, to email somebody to ask for a credential. But uh, um, otherwise, uh, I try not to think of you know, I used to always use that line, the, the Groucho Marx line about not wanting to be a member of a club that would have me. Um, I, I'm, I, I'm fine. Look, if they want me, I'd be happy to be a member. But I don't, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about it anymore. It's, it's really fascinating. I think for people that follow the Hall of Fame, the voting, every time it comes up, there's a, a lot of people that are chiming in with their opinions, but they probably don't realize the process and how it works uh, with the BBWAA and, and even your story. I had no idea that that's how it kind of went down. And it all seems kind of silly because we want to have uh, the people that cover this game the most with the most passion that know the game really well uh, that are contributing to the voting process. It only seems to make uh, the most sense. And so this seems like a kind of a silly loophole, but I also can really appreciate what you're saying about about, you know, just not uh, thinking about looking that far ahead. I mean, we just sometimes we get caught up in that. And, um, 
and uh, I think we end up just wasting a lot of time because we do not know uh, what is coming next and, and really even what the next day is going to bring. Um, I want to end with this one and just kind of ask you, position A for you, is there one uh, going forward? I know you love being a husband and being a father, but professionally now, uh, what would be uh, maybe, and I know you talked about writing columns three three times a week is, is the greatest job in the world. Is that it? Is that what you'd want to be doing next? As I know there's a lot of people wondering, you know, where are we going to find Rob? But I know you're going to go through that process and get that stuff figured out. Uh, but what is position A for you uh, going forward after Jabo and now finishing up? Well, it's a, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate. I've got a couple of months before I have to worry about uh, hitting the bread lines. Um, but, I mean, this is, as we're speaking, this is my last day at Fox. Um, and uh, I've never really been in this position before uh, of not knowing what I would be doing next when I've left my previous jobs. It was always for something else that I already had lined up, and, and that's not the case this time. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. I made a, uh, I spent a couple of weeks making keep, keeping a little notebook where I made a list of things that I might enjoy doing next, or, or or at least things that might be able to pay the bills. And what I would if I could choose one thing, it would be writing a book for the next year. Um, I've never really taken the time, just just done that. Spent a year doing nothing else but working on a book and a different sort of book than I've done before. Uh, I, I don't really have a lot of interest in doing the same sorts of things that I've done before. I'm ready to. Uh, I'd like to try a different sort of book. Um, so that's Plan A. Um, the trick is writing a great proposal and having an agent be. Um, uh, excited enough to pitch it to a, a, a publishing house or publishing houses. Um, that's plan A. Plan B, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I'm going to have to think about that over the next m- month or two. Um, uh, one of the, uh, I think one of the best things that I've read uh, in the last few years about life, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, is, 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 is uh, is about embracing uncertainty um, and being open to possibilities. And uh, obviously, one of the possibilities is 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 not having gainful employment. But there are lots of other possibilities, and they're I think at least as likely. Uh, so I'm trying to focus on um, just being ready for whatever's next, and uh, talking to as many people as I can, and uh, and seeing what happens. We're all looking forward to where that ultimately ends up being and where you're going to be writing regularly. And I will tell you that uh, players go through it, too. We, I've, I've been through it. I, rem- I remember early in my career, uh, it was my first full year, and I bounced around a couple of different places. And I remember a veteran, play- a veteran player saying to me, Mike Christopher, who, if I'm not mistaken, was a 31-year-old rookie at the time, and he said every player – needs to get released at least once and go through that experience. And I remember thinking to myself, no way, man. Like there's there's no value in that. That scares the crap out of me. I would never, I don't want to go through that. And I can't even tell you how many times it happened since then. I had, at that point it hadn't happened. But the first time it happens is it's it's not a fun place to be. Um, but there's value in it. And when we all go through it and every player for the most part or just about every player uh, goes through that process. And we don't put a lot of time in and when you're in your middle of your career you certainly don't think about the media side of it. But there there is value in embracing that uncertainty a little bit. There's there's excitement, 
it gets a little scary. There's a, there's a lot of different emotions that I think happen for all of us uh, in that position, whether it's, uh, you know, whether you're playing a sport for a living and, or whether you're working a regular job, whatever it may be, working in media. Uh, this is a brutal business, by the way, in that regard as well, and kind of seeing what's happening to the business. But there's value in it. And uh, this has been, uh, I've learned so much over the last, you know, year plus, two years that we have been doing this. Uh, you know, you writing to me was always kind of a secondary thing. I did it for fun. Probably the biggest appreciation I have for the work that we did was being challenged uh, because this is not a skill set that I, I feel like I have. It's just I, I, I write a little bit and I try to contribute columns, but I this is something that I don't feel like I can go back to. When I'm pitching and I'm struggling, okay, I've done it a bunch of times. I know how to, I know what it, what it feels like to do it right. When it came to this, I didn't have a track record. I don't have a skill set where I can go back to. I don't have a mentor I can go to. So okay, this is what I was taught and this is what I got to get back to to get back on track. And so I loved being challenged uh, by you in the process and being pushed and being encouraged to do more, dig deeper and all of those things. Uh, there was value in it and there was times where I was uncomfortable with where I was and, and being pushed uh, to be better, uh, like I said, to dig deeper is uh, there's value in that even though there was times where I was uh, not as confident in my skill set so I appreciate that part of of what we got to do together I loved doing this podcast it helped me grow as a broadcaster because I was put in the A chair where I had to lead and I had never been in that position before when I do radio work I'm the analyst when I do games I'm the analyst and you know I know the game I feel like I can roll out of bed and talk about the game but leading something is completely different so all of those things are benefits for me professionally uh, over these couple of years running Jabo, and I'm disappointed that it's gone, but uh, just an absolute blast uh, to work with you, and like everybody else, looking forward uh, to what that next step is going to be and where we can read you and see you, and uh, can't thank you enough uh, for these past couple of years. I really appreciate the time we got to spend together. Well, I I feel the same way, and I have to, you know, in all honesty, uh, until I worked with with you and and also Gabe, um, I'd always been, it's funny, one of the things about that you learn as you as you get a little older, I think, is that um, you don't get older, <laughs> and uh, I don't mean that in a necessarily in a good way. Um, that's true too, though. I mean, I feel in a lot of ways as young as I ever have, um, which is great. But I also feel less mature than I thought I would feel, and uh, even in my late forties, I felt this sort of distance and uncomfortableness uh, around players. Uh, I felt like there was like this wall between me who just watched guys like you do these amazing things and then me sitting here at my stupid little keyboard writing about them. Um, and I, I always felt inadequate around around players um, who are bigger than me and stronger than me and more talented than, than, than me. Um, and But getting to actually spend some time with you and Gabe, but especially you because we've been doing the podcast for so long now, it's really helped me understand that Yes, you are more talented, and yes, most players make a lot more money than than I ever have or will. Uh, but you're still just you're still people, um, which sounds ridiculous to you because, of course, you know you're a person. But uh, <laughs> when you when you don't spend time around players, when you see them on all you do is see them on television, um, it's you can you, you don't it's it's easy to miss that. Um, so uh, I think one of the for me one of the best things about this job and working with you is, has been realizing, Oh yeah, CJ has the same issues, the problems that we all have. <laughs> uh, not all, not all, not all the same problems, but a lot of them. Um, so, um, I, I really appreciate that. And I, um, this has been a blast, uh, not just Jabo, um, but 
but especially the podcast. So, so thank you for that. Well, I agree. And uh, sadly, for the last time, we we're going to wrap things up. One final thank you to Anthony Masterson for doing our intro, The Baseball Project, uh, for giving us our intro music, which was a little bit of a painful process getting that done. But once we got it done, uh, I certainly enjoyed it. I know you guys did as well. And Rob, of course, uh, expressed his appreciation for what they did at the beginning of the podcast. We cannot thank you guys enough for listening uh, to this podcast over the last year or so. Uh, a lot of fun, as we mentioned. For Rob Nyer, I'm CJ Nikowski. Thank you for listening to the Jabo Podcast. Woo-hoo!